sake of the gospel. I pray that you death. I pray for myself that you be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. And amen. You know, the other night at our, we were having a student search meeting and after the meeting I was talking to a couple ladies and I said, you know, I don't know how appropriate my sermon is going to be for Mother's Day this, this week. And without even thinking, one of them said, you know, Tommy, you're not really known for appropriate Mother's Day sermons. <laughs> so I think you're good. I, I think you're fine. And so with that said, we're looking at a pretty hard topic this morning. We're looking at the issue of, of martyrdom, persecution, all of that in the context of uh, Revelation chapter 6. Let me, let, me, let me open things up on a high note, I guess. Uh, this is Tacitus writing about uh, the Emperor Nero, and that would have been about the time of the Apostle Paul. He mentions him in Philippians, for example. So Tacitus writes that Christians were covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burned to serve as nightly illumination in Nero's garden. Happy Mother's Day. I just had to do that for you. Why do, why do we read that? Because we tend to, in the, in the church in the West, that is mostly the United States, I think in large part we're large, we, we're, we have no clue, really, of what persecution means, what martyrdom means, what, what its place is in the context of the gospel. And as you read through the book of Revelation, especially what we're looking at today, you can't avoid it. You, I mean, you really can't. And, and it, it is shocking, I think, in some ways. Before we actually jump in to chapter 6, starting at verse 9, it's my, it's my habit, especially since we're going through Revelation, is to give you a little bit of background and a little bit of, of, of theological background and that kind of thing every week to sort of keep us on track with how we're actually looking at the book of Revelation. And so what's the big picture, not just of the book of Revelation, but of the whole Bible? In other words, if you don't keep the big picture in mind, it's easy to get sidetracked when you read the book of Revelation. And what's the big picture of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation? It's just this. It falls in the categories of creation, fall, and redemption. Right? God created everything, and then he created uh, humanity after that, and he said it is good, and he proclaimed that basically not only is it good, but that state of things being the way they're supposed to be in Hebrew is called shalom. And then Adam and Eve fell, in the garden, and not only did they fall into this thing called sin, but they actually, because of Adam's sin, remember God said to Adam when he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In other words, the, the, the violation of shalom doesn't just affect humanity, it doesn't just affect Adam and Eve, it doesn't just affect us, but it affects all of humanity. You see, a lot of times when we think about the issue of sin, we just think about whether I'm a good person or I'm a bad person whether it's okay to be gay or whether it's okay to be straight. What is it okay to be? When you think about sin, most of us have such a tiny view of sin, we never really understand how grand the gospel is. Because this thing called sin has not just affected humanity, it has affected every single thing on the planet. In fact, the whole planet is affected. Then Jesus came, right? We get to the redemption part. He is known, Paul calls him the last Adam. And as the last Adam, he bears the curse that Adam brought upon us, and when he raises from the dead, he begins to renew not just humanity, but all of creation. 
And unless you keep that in mind, it's easy to get sidetracked because we tend to think as, as Christians in the West oftentimes that what it means to be a Christian is that I get saved here and then I gut it out on this earth until I die and then I go and wing myself to heaven and there I live a blissful existence for the rest of eternity. And that's just not what the Bible says. It's certainly not what Revelation says. At the end of the book of Revelation, as Revelation sort of ties up all the loose threads, it says that you and I will live someday on new heavens and new earth. And what it means now is that as we move from this point to that point, that if, if all of creation is cursed and all of creation is being redeemed, that means that every single thing that you and I do matters. Everything. Your job as a teacher, your job as a mom or dad or a lawyer, whatever you do, it matters that more and more we are supposed to bring that kingly redemption, kingly blessedness, to creation. And as you look at the book of Revelation, what, why do I bring all this up now? Because our job as Christians is to not just tell people about the gospel of Jesus, but it's to bring kingly blessedness to all of creation. And the problem is, is when you do that, we often, you often run into trouble. So let's say you're a Christian businessman or you work for a big company and you're working for a company and you realize they're doing something unethical. Or maybe it's, it's legal, but it's unethical. Maybe they're abusing the poor. And as a Christian, you say, I have to stand up for the poor. Well, you may lose your job. But that you do that because of, of how your Christian faith worked itself out because you really believe that everything matters. So keep that in mind as we move forward. And I think it will help us from getting sidetracked. As a review, remember we started chapter 6 last week. In chapter 4, that's when John has this vision of the throne room of God. In chapter 5, he sees the lamb on the throne. Remember, he hears that the lion from the tribe of Judah has conquered, but he looks and he sees a lamb as if it had been slain. And then suddenly he says, all, this, all of a sudden Jesus has this, the scroll and he begins to break the seals on the scroll. And we looked last week at the first four. And the first four were all horses. Remember, there was a white horse and the white horse stood for, for man's uh, desire to conquer. He comes conquering. The red horse has to do with war, usually. The black horse has to do with things like famine, which follows naturally after war. And the pale horse, remember the pale horse was the only one with a name. His name was Death, and Hades followed after him. So in some ways, the pale horse summarized all of man's inhumanity to man. And so after I spent all of last week telling you white horse equals conquer, red horse equals war, black horse equals famine, white horse equals death, or summarizing everything, I want to undo that this morning. What I taught you last week, actually it wasn't wrong. But this morning I want you to consider giving a different, a, a different way to read your Bible. Because when you read the book of Revelation, think about the people that first received this book. Remember, it's one letter written to seven churches in Asia Minor that all of them were struggling with their outward, ability to be outwardly faced, their ability to witness because of either economic persecution or real persecution, and they would have heard this book read to them for the first time. They would have heard the horsemen being read to them, and most certainly, they did not immediately start doing word studies, and they didn't start you know, doing a preceptive, kind of inductive Bible study. When they heard the Bible read to them, they heard it, and what that did was they had to react to it, not with, with their reason necessarily, but with something else, with their emotions. 
In other words, as, as Christians in the United States, we're sort of, we tend to be modernistic, and we tend to think, okay, I'm going to study the Bible now, so what I need to do is I need to break it down, and I need to do word studies, and I need to do Greek, and I need to parse it out. I mean, that's sort of what I do for a living, right? And then, we need, then we'll understand what it truly means. But when the audience that first received this heard it, all they would have been doing was sitting in a congregation knowing that they've been persecuted by the Romans, knowing that, wondering if they're even going to make it through anything. And as they hear this red in their mind's eye, they see the white horse being unleashed. They see the red horse being unleashed. They see the black horse being unleashed, the pale horse being unleashed. And they hear all of these things. What would they feel? And I'm telling you that because sometimes the way you feel is the proper interpretation of a passage of the Bible. You ever read the book of Judges? Remember the passage about Jephthah? where he says, Lord, if you give me victory in battle, I'll sacrifice the first thing that walks out of my tent when I get home. Is that crazy or what? What's going to walk out of his tent? Well, if you read the story, his virgin daughter comes out of the tent. And he goes ahead and sacrifices him. And it's, it's interesting to me to watch people try and get biblical application out of that. And I always ask people, how does that make you feel? Yucky? Disgusted, gross, how do you feel right now? And they tell me, and I said, that's the proper interpretation. So sometimes when you read the book of Revelation, you just need to feel, you just need to imagine. You know, C.S. Lewis said that, that, our, that reason is the primary uh, conduit for truth. But he said our imagination is the primary conduit for meaning. I'm not saying you should respond to everything emotionally, but sometimes you just got to let it go and listen to what the text is saying. And so if you're in the first century and you heard all of this, you, you heard about these horsemen that looked like Parthian archers, that the only thing the Romans feared, what would you feel? At first your heart might be lifted up and you'd say, see, the Romans are finally going to get it. There's finally going to be vindication. The people that have been sticking it to us, God's going to finally stick it to them. And you'd have been all excited until you got to verse 9. Because in verse 9, we run into martyrs who didn't fare as well as they did. So let's look at what happens with the martyrs. The fifth seal is, is when we meet them. Look at verse 9. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now this one, this one little passage has bothered me ever since I became a Christian and read it for the first time. Part of the reason it's bothered me is because I always had, either had the idea or I was taught that when you die you just go to heaven and there aren't any worries and there aren't any problems and there's no, no question is unanswered. And what you see here is some people that are apparently disturbed and they're asking God questions. And who is it that is disturbed and are asking God's questions? It says, under the altar, the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and the witness that they had borne. Now, what altar is this? Is it the altar of incense or is it the altar of sacrifice? It doesn't really matter. What matters is that they're in the presence of God and they are crying out. But what also matters is who they are. If you think this is happening in real time, most, most scholars do. John's vision that these martyrs here are probably those who, who lived through and died at the hands of Nero's persecution. And they're crying out to God. But what I wanted to point out to you is what they were not, why they're not, let me put it this way, that they're not, they weren't slain just for being Christians. 
In other words, Christians in the United States, it's interesting to me, I listen to the news a lot, and it's, I'm amazed at, at a few things about the way Christians respond to things. One, it seems to me that Christians, oftentimes, we're the most easily offended people in the world. Incredibly easily offended. And anytime people disagree with us, oftentimes we claim persecution. Oh, we're being persecuted because we can't do this. We're being persecuted because we can't do that. You know, anytime that you're allowed to lawyer up and fight something in court, you're probably not being persecuted. Probably someone disagrees with you. Now, if you're being harmed, or if you're being suffering economically, that's persecution. In other words, the people here, the souls that are under the altar, that are crying out to God, they are there because they proactively did something. They stood for the word of God, the message of the gospel, and the witness that they had borne. Now think about how ironic this is, because the churches are sort of being challenged that their witness isn't good enough. And what they hear almost immediately after is like, and look what it gets you. It could possibly bring death. But they weren't persecuted just because they were Christians. They were persecuted because of action they took on behalf of their Christian faith. You know, I, I don't, did I pull statistics up here? I have them in a minute. Look at verse 10. It says, They cried with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? There's something I wanted to point out here first. Notice that their cry, to whom they cry. They don't just cry out to the Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? They cry out, they say, O sovereign Lord, how long till you avenge our blood? And the reason that that's important is this, that unless God is sovereign, praying is absolutely worthless. Remember what sovereignty means? It's, it's not exactly the same, but it's, it's like unto providence that God governs and, and, and controls every creature and all of their actions. That, in other words, everything that happens, God is actually actively in, involved in. And in what sovereignty means is not only does he have the ability to govern things, but he has the will to govern things and the power to govern things and the authority to govern things. And unless he does, praying to him doesn't matter. The saints under the altar know he doesn't, so they ask him this question, how long? When you read through the Old Testament, the question how long is almost always a reference to vindication or vengeance. How long? How long are you going to make us wait until you avenge us against those who dwell on the earth? Now, is that, is that an okay thing for a Christian to pray? You know, when you look at the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, you see these things called imprecatory Psalms. And that's basically praying that your, your enemy will get his comeuppance, or that's what David prays. But most of the time, a prayer for vengeance really isn't that just that they, their deaths would be avenged, but it's the purpose for which they died, the witness that they bore. In other words, the, the pr- person whose reputation is on the line here is not the saint. They've already been shamed and, and killed for their faith. The reputation that's at stake here is God's himself. And that's the question they're asking. How long? It's not much different than than Moses in Exodus chapter 32. I love Exodus chapter 32. Remember, God is so tired of Israel's complaining. You know someone complains a lot when even God gets tired of it. He is so tired of it, he pulls Moses aside and he said, Moses, here's what we're going to do. I've got a plan B here. 
These people are so obstinate and stiff-necked and complaining. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to smite them. I'm going to wipe them all out, and I'm going to start over with you. You're not perfect, but at least you don't whine all the time. And do you remember what Moses says to him? He says, you can't do that. Why? You promised. You promised that you would take them from Egypt to the promised land. And if you don't take them from Egypt to the promised land, then you are going to look weak in the eyes of the other nations. It's your reputation that will suffer, not theirs. Everyone knows that they're a bunch of whiners and complainers. But the beauty of your grace is that you, in spite of the fact they're whiners and complainers, you still take them from point A to point B. And if you don't do it, everyone's going to laugh at you. And it's one of the few places that you read in the Bible that says God changed his mind. King James even says he repented. And what the saints here are saying is how long until you avenge our deaths on your behalf because your reputation is at stake. And notice the last, it says those who dwell on earth. In Greek, that's just the term earth dwellers. And that's in the book of Revelation, that is always basically a technical term for the unbelieving world that has set itself against God. So when you're reading the book of Revelation, you see those who dwell on earth are earth dwellers. Those are people who, who not only do they not trust Jesus, but they actually set themselves against his purposes. These are the ones who, who killed the Christians in this case. And if you look at the martyr's comfort, it, it, in some sense it's not particularly comforting, to be honest with you. Look at verse 11. It says, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had to be, had been killed. So they cry out, how long till you avenge us? And then God basically says they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. And remember the white robe isn't because of anything they've done. In chapter 7 we'll see the robes are white because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They're told to rest a little longer until what? until everything turns out peachy and fine. It says, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In other words, what seems to be the case here is that in God's mind, there's a set number of set amount of suffering that has to happen before Jesus actually cleans up everything and makes, comes for the final time. And it was very common in apocalyptic literature that, that there was a certain amount of suffering that had to happen. It's almost like that God knew when, when, a, when a thermometer, that's what came to my mind. Have you ever, you've ever been in church long enough to see a capital campaign when there are people raising money? Or when I was raising money for a church plant, you know, one of my assistants put a, a, made a space needle and put it on my door, and every time you know, we, we made a significant jump in fundraising, you know, $50,000, she'd color it in red. And as, as it filled up, you know, everyone got excited. And what is happening here is God has says to them, not until the, the thermometer is all the way full am I going to finish everything. If you read the Apostle Paul, he seems to be talked talk that way as well. Remember, he says that I fill up in my own body the afflictions of Christ. It's almost like Paul was saying, you know, Paul understood this some sense of there, there has to be this suffering that takes place, and I'm going to do everything I can to do it. It's almost like a pastor when you do a capital campaign, the consultants say that the pastor is supposed to stand up and say, here's what my family and I are giving, and your wife smiles, and you know, you're supposed to be impressed by that, and then everyone gives. That's what Paul does over and over. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
And so if you look at all the suffering that's happened, you know, you had the martyrdom of Stephen, you had the apostles, you had Paul, you had the saints that have suffered. All this has happened. Why are they suffering, by the way? Is God just uh, capricious and says there has to be a lot of suffering before I bring people back? I don't think at all. The irony is, is that the way the gospel moves forward is the same way the gospel came. In other words, the lamb that we serve is not the lamb who conquered, but it's the lamb who conquered by being slain. That the way the gospel moves forward is the same way that Jesus brought it, and it's through suffering, and it's through death. That Jesus came and won our salvation through his suffering and death, and now the church at some level is called to move the gospel forward through their suffering and death. Remember, Jesus said over and over, the servant is not above the master. And it's interesting that in places where when you look up the statistics in places where persecution is the highest and the nastiest and the ugliest, is the place where the church grows more and more quickly. And the place where things are easy and relatively fine and quiet and Christians have all the same rights as everyone else, the church sort of gets lethargic. And so the purpose of suffering in the Christian life at some level, besides making us more like Jesus, is actually moving the ball down the field toward the final coming of Jesus, toward the consummation and redemption of all things. The question is, is how much um, suffering are you going to be involved in? In other words, how much suffering are you willing to bear to see the ball move down the field? You know, we heard a few, about a couple months ago, I heard of someone preach and it was a very rousing sermon about how we should be taking care of the poor and around the world and we should be doing that and how we should be giving money to places and and, and engaging in places where there's genocide and all these kinds of things but one of the things the speaker said caught my attention and it bothered me and he just sort of said it in passing he said I know Muslim imams who are secret Christians isn't that exciting and I thought to myself that's not exciting that's bogus. It's bogus. Why would, or would you ever be a secret Christian? Have you, have you ever been to kids' Sunday school or taught kids' Sunday school? In kids' Sunday school, what song do they sing all the time? Hide it under a bushel? No, 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 no. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Jesus said, you can't light it and then put it under a bushel. A city that is on a hill is not there to be hidden. In other words, you, to be a secret Christian is an oxymoron. Becoming a, a Christian, even in the worst environments, if it brings persecution, at least according to what is happening here in the book of Revelation, is one of the things that God uses to move the ball down the field. It helps no one for you to trust Jesus and then keep it to yourself. Admittedly, it's hard in, the, in, a, in, a, in a, say, a Muslim environment, that kind of thing. But how about you? What's your excuse? Are you a secret Christian? Do people that you work with know that you're a Christian? And by the way, I'm the first one who can't stand people who try and witness at work and hand out tracts and things. But do they know you're a Christian by your actions? Do the people that you hang out with know that you are a Christian? If you're dating somebody, do they know you're a Christian? Do do people know are you a secret Christian? Because to be a secret Christian is just an oxymoron. And you know, I put some statistics down here, I believe, of martyrdom uh, since basically the resurrection of Jesus. And if you want to look it up, I, put, I think I put the source up there as well. The basically conservative estimate is about 70 million people since AD 33 have been killed because of their faith. 
70 million. And that's people who, who took a stand for something, not just for being Christians, but because they were Christians, because their faith meant something, they were killed. What's interesting is in the 20th century, more than half of them happened in our century. A conservative estimate right now, a conservative estimate is that about 110,000 people a year are killed for their faith. A more liberal one would be about 170. You know how many of those happen in the United States? I think I'd be pretty safe in guessing zero. Zero. Why? Because we don't tend to engage. We tend to try and just keep quiet. And I'm not talking about preaching. I'm, just ta- I'm talking about taking care of the poor, addressing societal ills, things like the civil rights movement. That wouldn't have changed if it wasn't for the church. Women's suffrage, all that, these things came from the church. And the question is, what about now? Christian, we're so afraid of being persecuted, and yet what you see in the book of Revelation, that one of the things that God uses to move the ball down the field is us, as, uh, the church being persecuted. What I thought was interesting as well, if you, if you have more than one child, you've, I, I guarantee you you've heard this from the older child at some point with regard to the younger child and the younger children, and it's the phrase, that's not fair. Right? You waited, made me wait till I was 15 to have Facebook. You let her do it at 13. What? That's not fair. Well, you know, I was, I was dumber when your sister turned 15 than I am now. You, let, you, let, you, you made me go to bed at 8 o'clock when I was 12 years old. You let her stay up till 10 now. You know what? It seemed to matter then. <laughs> I mean, you, just, you say it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. One thing that strikes me as incredibly unfair... Is there some, the, the people who teach that the church at some point is going to be removed from the earth in order to, to escape suffering. When you read through the book of Revelation, John knows nothing about the church being removed from suffering. There are other places in the Bible that might imply it, but when you read the book of Revelation, the church is not removed. In fact, if the church is somehow, if that position is right, if someday that the church is going to be removed, why us and not these 70 million people that came before us? I'll be honest with you, I I hate when people say things aren't fair, but if that's the case, I don't think that's fair. So 70 million people have to be martyred for their faith, but all the sweet, good people here at First EPC, you all are so wonderful and righteous and good that at some point Jesus, when, when it really comes time for trouble to come, he's going to remove you so you don't have to go through it. Do you believe that, honestly? Everything in my experience, but also everything that you read in the book of Revelation says that the way the gospel moves forward is not from the saints being removed from suffering, but by the saints going through suffering. And that's what you see in this fifth seal. Moving to the sixth seal. I've broken into three parts, I believe, and let me read it. It says in verse 12, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So the martyrs are crying out how long, the next seal is broken, and suddenly all of the cosmos is in upheaval. What does this mean? John's language here, by the way, is almost identical. He's almost quoting word for word from the prophet Joel, chapter 2. 
And if you remember during Advent, I think I remember preaching, whenever you hear this kind of language of the sky turning black and the moon turning to blood and the stars falling, in the ancient Near East, that, that was a sign that, that the powers were shifting. In other words, that, that there, was, there was a governmental shift in the universe. And that governmental shift affected everything. The question you have to ask yourself of all these things about when is the, the earthquake going to quake and the sun becoming black and the moon becoming like blood and the stars of the sky falling, when is that going to happen? If you read the New Testament, the Apostle Peter said it already did. Won't, won't. Right, that's a little bit anticlimactic, isn't it? Peter quotes Joel. He said this happened. When did it happen? It happened at the resurrection of Jesus, at his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. Peter said that's when the government changed. That's when the whole cosmos was, up, was, was brought into upheaval because now, up to this point, the whole world was under the reign, if you will, of Satan. And now that Jesus has risen from the dead, the rightful king is going to start taking things back. And as he takes things back, everything will be in upheaval. That's what's happening. That every time you read through the book, as you, you're going to come across this language uh, in a few more times in the book of Revelation. And another thing to notice, in the, those parts and in Matthew and in Mark chapter 13, is when these things happen, that's when Jesus returns. That G, when Jesus returns is when those things happen. And Peter said they already did happen, so what's going on? And the idea is this whole now and not yet thing. That on one hand, Jesus has come, he has risen from the dead, and he is taking over the world, and yet he will come finally to, to finish the job of taking over the world. But the fact is, is these things have happened, and they are happening, and they will happen. Remember, the whole purpose of the book is that Jesus has won, he will win, and he is winning. What's more interesting to me, at least, is social upheaval. Look at verse 15. It said, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And by the way, these are the ones who earlier referred to as earth dwellers. And when you read commentators, a lot of commentators say, well, really what this is, is, is it's, it's representative of all humanity, and it's showing that none of humanity is going to be able to escape the wrath of God unless they have trusted Jesus. That's true, but in this case, that's not what it says. Notice every person that's mentioned here, or every type of person that mentioned, is mentioned here, is some person who basically has a relatively secure life. So he's not saying all oh, the poor. He didn't say the rich and the poor. He says the rich and the powerful, the kings and the generals, the slave and the free. Everyone who thinks they are secure in the terrible day of God's wrath will suddenly not only be insecure, but they will be completely undone. But no matter how rich you are, no matter how secure you are, no matter how, how well off you are, no matter how comfortable you are, at some point the, the lamb is going to return. Either by his spirit, like right now among us, or eventually personally and bodily. But when he comes, you will be undone. Your security won't matter for a whit. And they call out, it says, verse 16, it says, these people will be calling out to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated and on the throne, who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? So people who formerly had everything together, the kings of the earth, the rich, the powerful, one day they will face the wrath of the Lamb. 
Now that's an ironic passage because that same lamb is the lamb who has already borne the wrath of God for those who would trust him. And yet, if you, for those who have not trusted him, someday they will bear his wrath. And the question is, is there any hope? What's the answer to that question? The, the, the wrath of the lamb will come. Who can stand? Can anyone stand? Fortunately, the answer, I think, is yes. Notice from Joel, I'll finish with this. He says in Joel chapter 2, verse 30, he says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And who can stand in that? Verse 32, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what Peter quotes, by the way, in Acts chapter 2. In other words, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that when the lamb comes back, that if you're rich and powerful or you're this or that, you, you, you cry out, may the rocks fall on me because I don't know what to do because I'm telling you right now, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever puts their trust in Jesus will be saved. And have you done that? Have you done that? Because if you've trusted Jesus, instead of this being a cry of agony, it turns into a song. Remember I told you before when we were looking at this passage that the same events come, the same dreadful events come on earth. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And for people who don't trust Jesus, they affect them one way. And for people who do trust Jesus, they affect them another way. And as I was driving here this morning, actually I was running yesterday and it hit me. That on one hand, while the people who do not trust Jesus at the very end, they're crying for the rocks to fall on them. The mount, may the mountains fall on me and the hills turn to dust. And then I remembered a song we used to sing in seminary all the time. It's one of my favorite songs from a, from a group of Catholic, from a group of Jesuits. Right? They would sing, Though the mountains may fall and the hills turn to dust, let the love of the Lord will stand. In other words, instead of saying, may the hills follow me and kill me so I don't have to face Jesus, they're saying, because I have trusted Jesus, the mountains may fall, or the hills will turn to just dust, and in spite of that, the love of the Lord will stand. That a mother would sooner forsake her child which is unheard of. A mother would forsake her child before the Lord would forsake you. And it goes on and on and on and on. And it basically takes all the things that people fear and shows how for Christians we sing about them. And the question is when all these things come, are you going to be one who sings or are you going to be one who cries out? Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that even now, um, people here are, are some people are, are facing hardship some people are facing maybe they're facing real persecution at some level but I pray that you would take them through it singing uh, you know Isaiah promised as we walk through the fire we won't be burned if we walk through the flowing river we won't be drowned that we would in fact move the ball down the field and Father that's a frightening prayer because I want to be like Jesus I just don't want it to hurt and I pray that you would give us strength to, to see the gospel move forward in our community in Christ's name we pray these things, amen and amen.